Hey, this is Steven Brodsky from Caven and Mutoid Man, and you're listening to The New Scene. everybody and welcome to the new scene. I am your host Keith and we're back with another brand new episode and I'm very 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 excited to bring you this week's guest. We have Aaron Turner. Aaron is one of the most prolific people from our scene and we got the conversation with him and I'm very very excited that we did. We cover everything. Hydrahead Records, Isis, Sumac, Old Man Gloom. He's done it all. He's doing it all. And that conversation is coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Reviews. We are on the push to 200 Apple Podcast reviews, and we're getting close. We sit at 184. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, Open the podcast app, search the new scene, scroll down, hit that five-star button. And if you write a review, I'll read it at the end of the show. Shirts. We have shirts for sale at Deathwish Inc. A variety of short-sleeve options and our long-sleeve shirt. The long-sleeve shirt is sold out in large. There's limited quantities remaining. Pick one up today. Also, you can always email me at newscenepod at iodinerecords. Also, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. The new LP from No Man, Glitter and Spit, was just announced. You can pre-order a copy right now. And you're going to want to do that, because this record is excellent. Join the Iodine Noise Cult, Volume 3. If you sign up, you'll get every new Iodine vinyl release in 2024. That's all 14 records that are coming out this year, and you get rare deluxe variants, free shipping, bonus flexies, and other perks. Space is limited. There's only 50 spots, so sign up soon. One Line Drawing will be playing ZBR Fest this May in Chicago. Jerome's Dream have East Coast tour dates that begin February 9th in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Also, Iodine is hiring a graphic design intern. You must have experience with Photoshop and Illustrator. To apply, send an email to info at iodinerecords.com. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor. It's a brand new month, and we have a brand new sponsor. Say hello to End Hits Records. End Hits Records was founded in Berlin, Germany in 2013 and they're now operating out of Germany and the west coast of the United States. They're home to many bands we know and love, Hot Water Music, Don't Sleep, Boy Sets Fire, As Friends Rust, Be Well, Terror, and Values Here. And here's some updates from the label. End Hits Records recently released Chuck Reagan's The Blueprint Session. That's on double vinyl for the first time gotta pick that up it's chuck reagan and the draft 
That's three-fourths of Hot Water Music, plus Todd from Discount. Their album, In a Million Pieces, has been reissued by End Hits. The album has been remastered for vinyl by, you guessed it, Brian McTurnan. All releases from End Hits are available via Death Wish Inc. for North America or Evil Greed for everyone in Europe and the UK. And there's a lot of exciting upcoming releases from End Hits. The discography box set from Swedish hardcore legends Abhinanda, new music from Hot Water Music, the 10th anniversary edition of Bane's legendary record Don't Wait Up, and more. Stay updated on new releases and be the first to know about pre-orders by signing up for the newsletter at endhitsrecords.com. Check out the website and give them a follow on Instagram as well at end underscore hits underscore records. Okay, so check back in with me in segment three. We'll do a wrap up of the Aaron Turner conversation. I've got new feedback. I've got new messages. I've got new reviews. We'll cover everything. But first, we are going to speak to Aaron Turner of Sumac. Enjoy. We are here now with Aaron Turner. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for having me. Yes, Aaron, it's great to have you here. You know, the list of things you've done in your life is very long and very accomplished. Hydrahead Records, Isis, Sumac, so many great things. And listen, we're going to cover all of that. But first, <laughs> okay. I want to ask you, how are you doing today? Uh, doing well for the most part. Um, everybody in my immediate circle is relatively healthy and well, and that is, uh, that is of the utmost importance. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to be spending most of my time in creative endeavors. So, you know, I'm grateful for that too. That's great. Where are you living these days? <clears throat> I live, uh, in Vashon, which is just outside Seattle. Um, it's on one of the small islands in the Puget Sound. So you have to take a ferry to get here. So it's a, a, a fairly quiet spot. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah, me too. Is it just you on the island or is there others? Uh, you, well, I live with my wife and son. Uh, do you mean a community besides us? Yes. Uh, it is not a private island. Uh, it is <laughs> quite a sizable community. Um, the land mass is roughly equivalent to Manhattan. Um, and the population is about 10,000. Wow, that must be a really cool and unique place to live. It is. Um, I grew up in a somewhat small town, Santa Fe, New Mexico, 
And, uh, you know, New Mexico itself is sparsely populated. So, you know, in a sense, I have a, a, a background that, um, you know, that's rooted in, in smaller communities and in close proximity to nature. And, uh, after spending some time in cities, um, you know, once I graduated high school and, and, and spent some time on my own outside of my, the house I grew up in, I kind of had my fill of living in cities and felt a, uh, a desire to return to, not to my homeland necessarily, um, but to a, a place that felt somewhat akin to, to the way I grew up. I like that. I like that. So you're married and you have kids too? I have one child. Yeah. And yes. How old? Married. Uh, he's seven. Ah, uh, so you must have your hands full pretty much all of the time between the many creative endeavors and the young child. <laughs> yes, life is full. Absolutely. Nice, nice. How long have you been living uh, in Washington? Uh, I started coming here in 2008, I think. I was um, the relationship with uh, the person who's now my wife, Faith Colochia, started around then, and we were kind of both traveling back and forth for a year and a half or so. I was at that time living in LA, but I would come come up here to the Northwest and spend, you know, sometimes a couple weeks at a time. And uh, she was doing the same, coming down to LA for work. And so there was probably about a yeah, maybe a year and a half or so of this transitional moment between extracting myself from LA and at least initially replanting myself in Seattle before moving out here to Vashon. Why did you move out to Los Angeles? You, Hydrahead was still active and you moved the label out there. Is that correct? It is. Um, so uh, between Hydrahead and ISIS, there was um, sort of a collective feeling of wanting to get out of Boston. And the person I was cooperating the label with at the time uh, had moved out to LA ahead of me and everyone else in ISIS had wanted to move, not necessarily to LA, but just move somewhere. And I think we were all feeling fatigue um, <laughs> from living in New England during winters, uh, successive winters. Some of us had grown up there. Uh, other, others had just, as I said, maybe sort of had enough. Um, and we didn't really have uh, a focal point in mind as far as where we wanted to move to. Um, there was a couple of people, or maybe just one, that thought about the Northwest, but given the fact that we wanted to get away from jury weather, I think that was squashed pretty quickly. And then the Bay Area was another option, but that was prohibitively expensive. So I think we settled on LA as just sort of a, an experiment um, in relocation. And it ended up working better for some than others. Did you like it? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, liked, I liked aspects of it. Um, the house I ended up living in was in a cool neighborhood, and there was a lot of great food there. And initially, I did like the weather, but I think after about two or three years, just the constant lack of seasons really started to get to me, actually. Um, and I will say that, you know, uh, while LA is a multifaceted city that's rich with a lot of different cultures, there is also an aspect to it that's very surface oriented and very success oriented. 
and especially being involved in music, that drive to succeed and that drive to compete was palpable. And that started to, to wear on me as well. So, um, you know, I, I can't say that I regret my time there because it was very formative in some ways. Um, but I'm, I'm glad to no longer be living there. Um, it was it, that, that stretch of time in my life for a variety of reasons was probably the most difficult of my adult life. So, you know, getting out of there eventually was kind of a good marker in terms of um, changing the way I live, changing the way I was approaching relationships and making art. And um, even for a few years subsequent to leaving LA, when I would go back there, I would just kind of be filled with this sense of dread. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, that said, it's been quite a while now and I can go back and appreciate um, the things I like about it. And I have a good time connecting with the people I know who still live there and my brother and his family are there. So there's a lot for me to enjoy. Um, it's just nice to have some distance from it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, I need season changes. I grew up, I still live in the Northeast and I love dreary weather. I love winter. I prefer winter to summer because uh, I just don't feel good in the summer and uh -huh. really extreme heat. And LA, you, you've heard, I'm sure you've hear, heard people say, uh, great place to visit, wouldn't want to live there. Yeah, I, I think that applies. That's how I feel. Because when I go there, it it feels exciting. And you see downtown LA and, there's just, and you see palm trees and you're like, wow, this is cool. But if you're there for an extended period of time, you're just in your car and driving to various strip malls. And I don't like it. Yeah. And, and exactly what you just said is, is part of what um, ultimately was, was the thing that ground me down was just being, um, in the car, being constantly pounded by the sun, uh, and not really being able to escape the city. Like even when I lived in Massachusetts, you know, you could drive 20 minutes out of Boston and, and be in a really nice stretch of woods and LA, I mean, you can go to the desert or you can go to the Hills, but it's really hard to feel like you're ever that, uh, far out of the city. And it's also really difficult to get in and out of it. So it just felt like this really inescapable thing. Um, and actually I have one distinct memory of, of sitting in my car on the, on the five stuck in traffic, you know, five lanes headed one direction, just surrounded by vehicles baking in the sun and thinking to myself, this is, this is not where I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised you were there that long. You seem like more of a uh, man of nature. <laughs> well, like I said, you know, after I left my, my, my folks home and, 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 uh, graduated high school, I wanted to be in a city. I wanted to be where there was a lot of activity. I really had a thirst for that kind of experience. And especially at that time, I was really looking to be part of a, 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 a musical community and I really wanted to start a band and I knew if I was in a city I would have a much wider pool of people to connect with who would have similar interests and that was hard to do in New Mexico there was there was a small and vibrant community but most of the people who were you know wanting to play music were already in bands and uh, I you know I could you know all throughout high school I was trying to get something going and never really did and then within the first year of living in Boston, I was finding people to play with and then forming a band. And it, it fulfilled that goal for me. And 
so did living in cities, uh, first Boston, then Los Angeles, and then for a little while, Seattle. Um, but then, you know, as I said, I'd had enough and I'd also established myself as part of a musical community and I didn't need to necessarily be in a city to perpetuate that. Right. So you moved from New Mexico to Massachusetts for college, right? You went to School of the Museum of Fine Arts? Yep. And then I ended up staying in Boston for another four years after I graduated. And that's where you started Hydrahead Records? Correct. Uh, no, actually. I had started it in New Mexico, but it was um, just a fledgling concern when I left there. And it really, um, you know, it, it took... Uh, it took being in Boston for me to really turn it into something. How did you get hooked up with the scene in Boston and everybody there? Did you just start going to shows and talking to people? I mean, that's the long and short of it. Yeah. Uh, and then there were some more specific things that, um, that kind of facilitated it. And one of them was, uh, getting to know the folks, uh, first and Converge, and then the Cave and the Cave and Crew. But uh, Jake Bannon and I became friends. I think in the first year that I was living there, and he helped me with some of the early Hydrahead uh, graphic stuff because I didn't really know how to use a computer at that point. Um, and uh, you know that kind of uh, Boston area uh, scene um, definitely was sort of my. Uh, my portal into a, a larger connection to um, to the world of music out there in the underground community. And with the label, you know, you handled a lot of the artwork yourself in reading about you. You've always had an interest in artwork, even from uh, even as a young child. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been a constant throughout my life. So when a band would enter onto Hydrahead with you, would you say to them, "Look, like I like to be involved in"? in the layout design, what do you think of that? How would those conversations go? I always, um, I always presented it as an option and a preference, but never as, um, as a necessity. If, if bands had another idea, I was happy to facilitate that. And whenever they left the door open for me to participate, whether it was to make artwork or to do a logo or to do the design or to do all of it. Um, that was, that was certainly something, um, that I was happy to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, researching about you and the label, you wanted a clear visual identity to go along with the label. And, uh, you know, I think that's really important. Like the music is very important, but I think having a cohesive identifiable look and a good aesthetic is also very important. Yeah, absolutely. And that was true for me in terms of the other labels that I was interested in and also in bands too. Um, those who had a very clear and specific vision about what they wanted to communicate. Uh, and, you know, this is part of a, um, you know, this is part of just a, you know, the subjective experience of being a listener slash viewer, but, you know, the bands that are, are, the dearest to me are the ones who had some sort of overall presentation. They had a defined sound, they had a defined aesthetic, and and in many cases a defined ethos in terms of the way they operated. Uh, and that was that was compelling to me, and that was what I wanted to be able to do uh, as a band member and as a label operator. And I, I love the aesthetic too. You know, I, I read that you were inspired by Touch Records and uh, John Rosencroft, who. 
I wasn't familiar with previously, but flipping through and looking at all the covers and then looking at all the stuff you've done, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see some similarities there. And I like, uh, I like locations. I like, uh, nature. I like, uh, buildings. I like that kind of stuff. So when I look at, a a Jezu album cover and you see like the factory or, or you see like an ISIS album cover and just the vast ocean, I'm, I'm touched by that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, touch for me, uh, certainly was an inspiration and also had a very narrow, um, set of parameters that they operated in, in terms of the visual presentation. I mean, that is an instance where it's kind of like, if you're on the label, they do your design and that's, that's the way it is. Um, Hydrahead certainly was less strict in that way. Um, but, you know, similarly wanting to have a very clear visual identity. Um, and just on the more, you know, I've talked about this in other interviews too, there are other labels um, sort of on the punk end of the spectrum that did that for me too. Like, uh, you know, labels like Bloodlink and Gravity and Ebullition who had a lot of handmade components to what they were doing, whether it was silkscreen covers or, you know, some kind of hand embellishment or things like that. I, I really liked the human touch that was, um, you know, that was apparent in the, in their presentation. Um, so whenever I encountered something like that, uh, it was, it was something that made me curious about who was involved and made me want to dig into their world. And it also was a point of inspiration for me to see how people were doing things, how they were, um, you know, using their own ideas and their own sense of aesthetics to participate in something and to, you know, define what they were doing and, and create all these little micro communities. I like that. I like that. And in terms of the artwork, I think there should be some personality, some, you know, some, uh, some history, some story. I think adding all that into it just adds more to the whole package. Yeah. Context is important and artwork can certainly be a big time of that, uh, a big part of that. And uh, anchor it at a point in time too. I mean, you know, of course it's easy to deride some of the bad design choices that were made in, in mid to late nineties hardcore, but it also has its charm, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that's true of any era. You can look back at the things that were, you know, maybe more timeless or, and, and possess a, tr a true beauty. And then there are these things that people were trying that were experiments that ultimately really reflected that moment in time for better or worse. How long were you handling the label yourself before you started bringing other people on? Uh, that's a good question, actually. I, the first release came out in the fall of, that must have been the fall of 95. And I think it was somewhere around 98 or 99 where uh, I started working with Mark Thompson as the kind of co-operator of the label. Um, and there had been other people kind of floating in and out who would just help me with things at sort of random intervals. Um, and after Mark came on, we had a succession of other employees, some who lasted longer than others. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would say it was about four years in when I started having more consistent help from other people. Yeah. That's around the time I discovered all of this music. And by then Hydrahead was already a leading label in this world. I mean, from the moment I got into this music, I was listening to Hydrahead releases, Cave-In, Beyond Hypothermia, Botch, American Nervoso, and the, you know, Drowning Man had just put out Suicide Hotline. There was a lot of 
exciting things happening in the scene and on your label in particular around 98. Yeah, and I realized <laughs> I needed help to to be able to do justice to the the records that, you know, these bands were making. I wasn't going to be able to do it all on my own and we wanted to be able to expand the reach and and make these the presence of these records more immediate um and so that was the beginning of the label becoming you know a multi-employee operation uh and <laughs> running a business was something that none of us really knew anything about and there were a lot of mistakes made uh and that said i think also given our lack of knowledge in many ways, we did a, a, a pretty good job of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it was, it became what it was very much because of the personalities and the characteristics of the people behind it, but both the people working at the label, as well as the bands who are very much a part of it too, in the sense that like, not just the records that they were putting out, but the people I was spending time with, the people who were in the office on a regular basis, uh, the, the bands that were going on tour together. Um, I mean, it very much was a, a community in that way. Not, not everybody we put out a record record for was necessarily a direct participant, but many were. Is there a particular instance you could think of that was a, like a big mistake and you're like, Oh man, uh, we're really going to have to learn from this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately there weren't many moments of realization while mistakes were being made. It was more in the aftermath of those mistakes that the realizations happen. And many of them were kind of slow dawning realizations. Um, and honestly, it took five or 10 years of the label being a bigger business before I started to see uh, the, uh, the flaws that you know, ultimately led to the label sort of falling apart and eventually ceasing to exist. Oh, really? Yeah. One of them, one of the biggest problems is, was also, I think one of our, one of the things that made the label interesting was just kind of this boundless enthusiasm about music where I, you know, all the stuff that I, anytime I heard a band that I felt like fit into our world, I wanted to put out a record for them. So it was always just like this hunt for for bands to release and people to work with and connections to make uh and and new friendships to forge and much of that i think was positive however uh you know it it did become apparent after the label had been around maybe 10 or 12 years or something like that that we were just doing too much and uh releases were getting really delayed because we didn't have the cash flow to be able to you know, keep up with manufacturing, uh, and um, we weren't able to properly attend to each and every release we did because there was just too much. Um, and you know, again, I wouldn't necessarily change any of this stuff because it's it it shaped my life and hopefully shaped the lives of some of the other people involved in a good way. Um, but you know, if I were in the position to advise someone who is starting a label now, uh, although given the context people are in now is very different. Um, I would, you know, I would encourage a, a slower and more methodical approach rather than just this jump in and do everything you think you possibly can all at once, all the time. I see. So it, you didn't have an idea of like, okay, we can put out X number of releases no, per year no concept, and be okay. No, concept of that. <laughs> no it was like, 
you know, we would have a release or two or three that would sell really well. And we would get all this money come in from the distributor and we'd be like, okay, we have this much money. Let's spend it all on pressing this, 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 and this, instead of being like, oh, we need to have a reserve of money. We need to pace these things. Um, yeah, I mean, there was no real, uh, there was no real forethought or any kind of long view that was um, being discussed or implemented on a regular basis. How did Botch get on your radar? How did you sign them? Uh, I I can't remember. I think I got their first seven inch. I I I have been a lifelong record collector. Uh, even going back to when I was in New Mexico, I was mail ordering a lot of records from small distros and um i don't remember when i got the first botch seven inch which was faction i think was that it Um, i think so yeah but i remember getting that and thinking it was kind of cool and then they did the john birch conspiracy theory seven inch and i was like oh man this is awesome and they had that cover of uh oh fortuna on there and i thought you know this is a really interesting idea and this band clearly has a lot of energy and ingenuity and I don't remember what happened after that. Um, I, I have a memory of holding, uh, you know, like a, a dubbed cassette in my hand. And I think it was demos for American Nervoso and uh, being just really excited about that. But I don't remember if I had written them first or if they had sent that to us or how it happened. Uh but I do remember having that tape and, and being really excited about the prospect of working with Botch. And uh, that's that was the jumping off point somewhere around there. With them or any of the other many bands that you've had on the roster over the years, is there a time where, you know, you just heard it in advance of the record what you were going to be putting out and were like, wow. Because I'm, I'm just imagining hearing We Are the Romans for the first time before it goes out and just being like, wow, this is unlike anything I've ever heard before, this is going to be big. That Well, I never had any thoughts about whether something was going to be big or not. I mean, I think there were times where, you know, I was hopeful that that would be the case. Um, but my first thought was almost always just being excited by the music. Um, I think the first really big wow moment that sticks out for me is going to the first location of God City, which was in the basement of an apartment where Kurt Ballou lived. And I forget who else lived there. Uh, There was quite a few people that that kind of bounced in and out of that house. But anyway, I went over there when he was working on Until Your Heart Stops with Caven. And he played back some of what they were, what they'd been working on. And I just, it, it literally just blew my mind then and there. And, And I, I had enjoyed Caven a lot up to that point, but that was clearly, you know, an ascendance to a new level of in- musical ingenuity and a greater development of their very distinct personality. Um, and I just remember feeling so excited and feeling the hair on the back of my neck stand up listening to those songs and um, just feeling really excited because that was kind of like, uh, that was one of the more. I guess that was one of the earlier relationships where we started working with a band and then started developing uh, a kind of a parallel career with them where we were fostering what they were doing and they were working on their end to help, you know, um, 
promote their work and it really felt like a cooperative effort that was a a, a building thing rather than just like oh we're going to do this we're going to do this as a one-off type thing and and who knows if we'll ever do more from there right because you did a lot with Caven even up till 2011 they came back with uh, well they did other releases but after the whole major label thing, they came back with White Silence. They did White Silence, and then, uh, you know, up until, let's see, what was it? I'm trying to remember what year Final Transmission came out, but Final Transmission was the last record we did for Cave In, and one of the final full-on releases that the label did, and that was probably, not probably, it was our longest-running um, and most productive relationship of any band we worked with. We did so many records for them from, you know, very early on in the label to the very end of the label. And, you know, to this day, those are some of my, some of my um, closest and longest running friends that I made through this process of running a label and being in bands. Yeah. I still remember where I was and what I was doing when I heard Until Your Heart Stops for the first time. Someone put on juggernaut and then that melodic part kicked in with the guitar lead right and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and i was like what is this yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i it was that you know the that combination of those really satisfying pummeling passages of metallic hardcore and then those much more almost kind of psychedelic and lush melodic moments which at that point was very much a novelty in the realm of hardcore. Of course, it became this very tired trope later on. But in those days, there were very few people kind of crossing those those boundaries. And it was exciting to, to witness that firsthand. Big time. When did you start performing in bands after you uh, did you did you hook up with a band when you were when you moved to Boston? Um I mean, there was little stuff in New Mexico. I, I had this band with this with my friend Trent. I think it was in ninth or tenth grade, and he was really into the Ramones, and I was really into Metallica. And we made you know we made some demos and stuff. But uh, and I did some weird one off performances, and all, still in Santa Fe here and there, but nothing you would call an actual band until I want to say maybe. Uh, without looking at discogs <laughs> uh, to look at these releases, um, maybe '96 was when I started my first more active band in Boston called Union Suit, and we did a demo which Hydrahead sort of informally released, and then we did a seven-inch on Second Nature, and that was kind of the end of it. But that was sort of like the proto-band experience for me, where I I learned what it was like to write songs with a group of people, record them, try to flesh them out, play shows here and there. Um, and that, that was a good uh, formative way for me to figure out more clearly what I did and did not want to do uh, as far as starting or, or participating in a band. So when does ISIS come together? How does it come together? Shortly, very shortly after the demise of Union Suit, which was you know probably like a year and a half or two years after we started, um, and actually it may have sort of the foundation for it may have existed even prior to the end of that band. Um, I got to know Jeff Kashid, um, maybe around I don't know sometime in '96, I'm guessing, and we became roommates somewhere also around that time, 96, 97. And he was one of the first people I met 
that was coming from this background of punk and hardcore, but also had a, a, a real interest in things that pushed well beyond those boundaries. Um, and we had a shared love of things like Godflesh and swans and uh, neurosis and earth and things that were, you know, in some instances coming again from a punk or hardcore background or coming from a metal background, but really kind of expanding into other more experimental territories. Um, and so it was the beginning of ISIS was kind of forged out of those mutual interests. Um, and, uh, I think we talked about the idea of the band for a little while before we actually started figuring out who else to play with and how we were going to put it together and, and before any music was actually written. Yeah. I've heard you cite, uh, Godflesh, Swans, Neurosis, you know, like as influences, not just for music, but they have a clear visual identity and some mythos behind them. Is that something you wanted uh, when, when you were starting ISIS, are those elements you wanted to put into the band? Um, yes. I mean, I think the idea that, you know, those bands uh, and a handful of others really put the music and the art first and foremost. It wasn't necessarily that they, they you know, there was anonymity behind what they were doing. Uh, but there was this sense that the people behind these projects and their specific personalities were less important by far than what they were putting together and presenting as artists. Um, that creative identity uh, had so much potency because there wasn't this emphasis on the idea of musical celebrity driving it. It was more about, you know, really cultivating this idea of a musical world and, and operating it in a way that would allow them to have full uh, control over what they were doing um, and operating from this idea of uncompromising creative integrity. Yeah, that came across too, because uh, I've always really liked ISIS. And when I saw you guys perform, it was kind of mythical because I, you know, I didn't know what your personalities were. I didn't know what anyone was like, but it was, you know, I would see you up there and it would be like, oh, there they are. Yeah. And, you know, I think again, just, you know, talking about the live context, I, I always appreciated going to see bands um, who, you know, didn't pander to the audience. They clearly put a lot of effort and energy into what they were doing, but there was not this idea that it needed to be this fun spectacle of entertainment. The purpose was to become fully immersed in and even entranced by this this musical moment and really inhabiting that moment um, fully and uh, being highly invested in it. And so that was that was definitely part of the intent with Isis as well. When I discovered you, Mosquito Control was out and you were the loudest band in existence. Like you would play and and you would clear the room. A lot of people would, a lot of people would leave because they couldn't handle it. But the realest of the real would stay for it. So, what was the gear set up at that time? Did you just have the amps turned all the way up? Were you using full stacks? What was going on? Uh, I mean, volume and physicality was definitely a very a very crucial component, um, and that was something we talked about too, and also a part of those you know, those, uh, those bands that we really liked was, was 
you know, experiencing them in the in a full body way. Uh, I remember at I Hate God too was another one where it was just like being completely overwhelmed by the physical presence of the music. Melvin's would be another one. I mean, we were going to a lot of shows back then, and I just remember being inspired every time where bands were just doing everything they could to completely overwhelm the listener. And that approach was really appealing to me. I felt like being able to feel the music in your body and being able to kind of shut down, um, you know, the the unquiet mind that's uh you know sort of busy throughout the day just kind of um crushing it into submission <laughs> was <laughs> was a really powerful tool and so you know there was probably a way in which there was like a bit of sadism in it like seeing how much we you know how much pain we could inflict on the audience or maybe a masochistic aspect too like how much could we ourselves take um, and there were probably times too, where the, the, the musicality of what we wanted to do suffered a little bit. Um, that said, I really, I did feel like it was important to play as loud as we possibly could just to create that sonic density that would help us become, um, you know, become unified through sound and also just overwhelm the people who are willing to, to endure it with us. <laughs> Uh, did, did you have a lot of arguments with sound guys or, uh, venue owners? I mean, early on, not really. Cause a lot of the places we were playing were like, you know, VFWs or, you know, smaller venues where nobody really gave a shit. Um, I don't remember really having trouble with it until we went to Europe for the first time where DB limits are in some countries a lot more strictly enforced and that was you know that was always a groan where it was you know we'd we'd play somewhere and have these long protracted arguments with with you know the house sound folks or venue owners or whatever and in some cases ultimately kind of having to submit at least during sound check and turn way down and then of course you know when it came showtime turning back up again and suffering whatever the consequences might be but um <laughs> You know, I, I I think in most cases we got away with it, and certainly there were bands who were louder than we were, and and uh, and really pushing that. So we weren't at the most extreme end of that spectrum, though. Of course, we we often wanted to be. <laughs> right. So Oceanic was a uh, defining album for ISIS, and there was a change in sound for you as well. How did? How did that come about? Did we get together and say we want to try something else? Did it naturally come out of the writing? I felt like most of what happened was just the process of evolution for us, where we didn't really want to have one record that sounded pretty identical to whatever had preceded it. And so there wasn't necessarily like this conscious effort to incorporate, you know, this amount of quiet passages or that amount of clean vocals. It was more just trying to write things that felt compelling and uh, developing the songs as a group um, with everybody's uh, contributions, you know, shaping, uh, shaping the compositions as a whole. Um, and I think that there was, there definitely was like a push and pull amongst the members in terms of how people wanted to progress or move forward. And part of that was really productive. It was part of what strengthened the sound. Um, and ultimately it was also part of what eventually 
uh, I think in many ways pulled the band apart. Um, but that kind of creative tension is at the center of, you know, a lot of bands and, uh, not entirely uncommon. Um, so I don't know. I, I think from the very beginning, and this goes back to my earliest conversations with Jeff, I think even before starting the band was, we just didn't, we didn't, we didn't feel content with the idea of just emulating the bands we liked. Of course, there was a degree of that, but what we really wanted to do was push ourselves and see what would happen through the process of ongoing experimentation to one degree or another. Um, I think our willingness to, to experiment collectively sort of diminished as time went on, but I do remember at least as far as, as Oceanic and maybe even into Panopticon, there was this idea to just kind of keep pushing in different directions and, and finding out what worked and what didn't and what felt compelling and what felt redundant and uh, really just relying on, on, uh, on our intuition to guide us towards those things that felt the most vibrant, uh, most relevant to what we wanted to be hearing and, and creating. Had your music taste changed over the years and did that influence what was going on in ISIS at all? Like when I got into this, I just wanted to listen to the most extreme and crazy music there was out there. But then I discovered emo bands and then I got really into post rock. So, you know, that would influence what I was writing in bands as well. Was that the case for you? Um, I think I've always been a pretty eclectic listener. And Again, just going back to to conversations with with Jeff when we were roommates before we were bandmates, you know, we were we were talking about um, some of the aforementioned bands, but also talking about the first couple of Today Is the Day records, where there'd be these really chaotic and really sort of angular passages that were metallic and and abrasive and then there'd be these moments where there these really beautiful and unusual chord progressions with this kind of um harrowed falsetto vocal over top and just being really um inspired uh, by hearing that um and then you know it also went into the realm of bands far outside of the the heavy music trajectory um low for instance i remember listening to a lot of their music and just appreciating the spaciousness. And there was a different kind of heaviness to that. It it had to do with the pace of the music and um, what felt like a really um, potent atmosphere and, and and kind of a a deep um, melancholy or even sadness at the heart of the music. And that, that was certainly a part of it for us too, is just wanting to have music that was emotionally potent and not just music that was angry. Of course, that's, that was there and that was relevant, but something that was, um, more fully embodying the full human experience rather than just wanting to, to pummel people all the time. Did you do the cover for Oceanic? Where did the picture come from? Uh, my then girlfriend was, uh, uh, enrolled in art school at that time. And part of her practice was photography. And she had some photos that I think she had printed, um, at school, or maybe I'm not sure if, uh, she had had them printed elsewhere, but whatever the case, I had already had a title for the record and I had all the lyrical themes worked out. And I saw these photos that she had done and, and that one in particular, 
And I scanned it and used a portion of it and colorized it just to give it the exact atmosphere I wanted it to have. And uh, that's, that's how it came to be. And, and that was often the case for developing artwork for um, ISIS as well as other things, was just listening to the music, listening to the lyrics, um, looking at art books, uh, looking at art and photography by people who are friends of ours. Um, or somehow we were connected to, and there was often just these interesting synchronicities that would happen where something would just land in front of my eyes and I would know that that was the thing that needed to be the visual voice for whatever this musical project was that was currently underway. Right, right. Yeah, it's a great cover too. I'm, I'm personally fascinated by the ocean. It's like the last, one of the last great frontiers on earth and just the vastness and everything. So I just sometimes go back to that record cover and I'm like, yes, yes, this is perfect. Yeah. And I, I love those moments where things seem to come together that way. And I'm a big believer in just immersing yourself in your work and whatever you encounter and whatever is happening to you at that moment in your life becomes, or, or, you know, and under the right circumstances can become um, part of the work itself. And when you are seeking an idea and you kind of intentionally put that energy out there, you will draw the things to you that you need to have to be able to sort of effectively and fully realize your vision. When do you sign with Epicac? And does that make things easier for the band? Because up until that point, you're putting out ISIS records, right? Like, does it have having someone else involved to do some of the work make it easier for you? Um, well, I think there's a uh, a slight misperception in the sense that though Hydrahead did release the ISIS demo, and we were we co-released Celestial in Europe, uh, the first handful of things were done with Escape Artist Records. Well, Mosquito Control was, and then Celestial. Oh, that's right. And yeah. Second Nature did the Red Sea. Um, so it was after those, oh, and, and Neurot did Signal 5. So it was after that sort of array of different labels that we worked with on the first couple of EPs and first album that um, ultimately led to us landing on Ipecac. Um, James Plotkin, who was part of uh, Adam Smasher, then uh, Phantom Smasher, a project we released on Hydrahead, and then later a, a member of Connate um, and a participant in some other things we were sort of peripherally involved with. He went on tour as Phantom Smasher, opening for Phantom Us. And when he went out with them, I said, Hey, James, do you mind passing some of these ISIS things on to Patton? Um, the idea being that, you know, we wanted to go to a label that would ultimately be more of a home for us that seemed like it was artistically um, open on a wider scale and um, again sort of using the you know our our um, our interest in the bands who had inspired us as a guide we sort of looked to the Melvins and and saw that they were continuing to do a lot of releases with Ipecac and we thought, well, you know, the Melvins have kind of been through every conceivable label scenario there is. And if they are entrusting Ipecac with their work, 
it must be it must it must be a pretty good place to be. Um, and I, we may have even I may have even read in uh, an interview with Buzz or something like that where he had mentioned Ipecac just kind of being like, "Yeah, we're here for you. Do what you want." Um, creative integrity is the name of the game and we're going to stay hands off. You just do your thing and we'll be here to support you. And that's exactly what we were looking for. We wanted a label that had the resources and the reach to be able to support what we were doing, but would also completely stay out of it and just let us, you know, be who we were. And that's exactly what Ipecac did for us. Yeah. Things got pretty expansive, right? I know you, I know you toured with Tool at one point, I think in 2006 and even people not involved in uh, the scene would know ISIS, you know, because they saw you with Tool or they heard about you. Like people, you know, people that I knew who didn't listen to hardcore or metal or core or any of that stuff would know ISIS. Yeah. And again, that was partially a goal for us in the sense that we weren't looking, uh, or I would say in most people's perspective, as far as participants in the band, we weren't necessarily looking for mainstream acceptance, but what we were seeking was a wider audience beyond the realm of just metal and hardcore because that was not the totality of who we were there was so much else in play that we were incorporating into our sound that we were really hoping to find listeners who went beyond those bounds as well um and that was you know that was important for us in terms of being on Ipecac, but also in terms of, you know, the curatorial approach we took to bands that we brought out on the road when we had the opportunity to do that. We really tried to take not only bands that didn't sound like us, but were nowhere really even near the realm we were operating in. And in many cases, weren't even necessarily bands. We took a lot of solo performers who were doing much more abstract ambient or textural or noise related stuff and we did quite a few tours with our label mates on ipecac dialect who were you know doing a following a similar trajectory in the realm of hip-hop that we were with metal where there was just um a a clear uh foundation in this one particular world and then this this intentional move to incorporate a lot of other things um into something new and so that was that was definitely at the heart of our practice in many ways. From an outside perspective, it seemed like the band was always respected with their choices. You guys did a lot of different things, a lot of different collaborations. The sound changed, the sound evolved, but it didn't seem like there was, there was ever any big fan backlash or anything like that. Was there ever from your perspective? Not really from what i could tell and again part of this just i think has to do with the fact that we never pulled like a radical 180 to me when i look at the progression we had from album to album it made sense it everything kind of just followed along um us um i don't even know what the right word for it is but if you if i look at the arc of what we did there's no major hurdles or gaps or sharp turns it feels like everything built upon what was there before and then expanded outward towards whatever the next thing came to be so what we did wasn't a jarring revelation for most of the people that listened to us there were certainly i mean over the years folks who said 
you know, I really liked your first two EPs and then I didn't like it after that. And that's to be expected for any band that changes what they do. You're not, you're never going to be able to please your entire fan base throughout the, the course of your existence. Um, but yeah, I never felt like there was a time where, you know, a huge swath of our audience turned against us because of any particular record or song or band we chose to go on tour with or anything like that. How did the collaboration with Aerogram come about? That's one of my favorites. And the song Low Tide, that's one I go back to all the time. Uh, that's a good question. I don't remember exactly how we got to know those guys. Um, I do know that uh, Concurrent, the label that was doing that, that Fish Tank series, was kind of suggesting artists to pair with each other. And it was their suggestion that we work with Aerogram. That was not our introduction to the band, however. We had known of their music prior to that and been appreciators of it and, and also appreciators of the previous installments of the Fish Tank series. There was a lot of really cool artists who were paired up for that and made albums that we had, had enjoyed. So when that that pairing was suggested and that participation in that series was suggested we immediately uh agreed to it and um i wish we had done more of that kind of thing and i'm also glad we had the opportunity to do that that particular project moving into the final record wavering radiant did you guys know it was going to be the final record ah good question it was definitely a long and kind of grueling process to write that record. There were many days spent in the practice space while working on that where we would try something and then just kind of sit there in silence for what <laughs> seemed like hours, but was probably just, you know, five or 10 minutes at a time. And I think it was becoming clear that there was those diverging interests that we had had that had originally been a source of strength were becoming a point of division between us creatively. So I don't think there had been any explicit statement of dissolution made before we completed that record. Um, however, once it was released and we, the tour cycle for it began, it was during that um, where I think there was really, I mean, at least from my perspective, a sense that things were, if not breaking down at the very least in, in serious need of repair or discussion, um, which was not our strong suit, <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, we had started the band as 19 and 20 year olds, and that's not an age at which most males I knew were really good com at communication and really forthright about what was going on. And so that pattern of being sort of uncommunicative and withholding from one another on, on the deeper, more fundamental levels was, uh, was sort of firmly ingrained in how we operated. And also, again, part of what led to us having difficulty working with each other towards the end. What was it specifically like? You mentioned uh, different influences, uh, the friction, you know, being something that can help the band, but ultimately pulled it apart. Could you just not get on the same page musically? Did pe did different people want to do different things? Like, what was it? 
I mean, you know, there was a there was a point even during the writing of the previous record where I can't remember. I think Mike Gallagher was living on the East Coast, and Jeff Kashid was also living in North Carolina. So we were already just spread out, which in and of itself presented some difficulties, and I think made it hard for us to to be on the same page um, because often we weren't even in the same space. Um, and then, you know, by the time we got to the, the final record, I think, you know, we were becoming more fully formed adults with clearer identities in our early days. Like I said, when we were 19 and 20, we were all just wanting to get out there and play and write music and make records. And for a while that's enough. And then I found at least, you know, getting into my twenties and thirties that I really needed more than just doing the thing. There had to be something that felt like it was really nourishing my life and nourishing my creativity. And I felt like that was increasingly uh, rare in the context of ISIS. And again, I, 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 I uh, look to the way in which we communicated as a big part of the problem. I think if we had been able to if we had had the tools to be able to speak more openly with one another and talk about how we were actually feeling, uh, talk about what our actual artistic aspirations were, it may not have necessarily prevented the ultimate breakup, but at the very least, it would have lessened a lot of the tension that contributed to it. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say that it's hard to pinpoint one specific thing as being the the cause for our dissolution. But if I had to, I would say it was that inability to openly communicate. And, you know, that's, that's at the heart of any good relationship, whether it's a band or a marriage or a friendship or a business relationship. If you can't speak openly with the others involved, you're not going to be able to come to a consensus about what you should and want to be doing. Right. It's still hard. I'm 41 now, and it's still hard to communicate effectively in the way you should, and especially in a band context, because, you know, factions form and people get ideas, and this side is saying this, and this side is saying that, when it might not be the truth. And if we could all just get together and say, like, hey, here's how I'm feeling, it would be okay. But it's really hard to do that, and I'll still fall into the old pitfalls sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, that's, I mean, part of that is just you know, uh, the culture of being raised as, you know, uh, men in the in the eighties and nineties, it's like, that was not encouraged by any means and, no. and in many cases disparaged. So there was a lot in our own, our own programming from the families we came from to, you know, the, 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 the communities we were a part of. And, um, you know, I, I, I said this to one of my former bandmates the other day because we were talking about it. I was like, I feel so grateful for so many of the things we got to have as the result of being in this band together. The one thing I really regret is not honoring what we had by speaking more openly with everyone in the band and, and by letting our friendships get damaged by that inability to communicate with one another. How is everybody's relationships now? Are we all talking? Are we all good? Yeah, and it was never super acrimonious. I mean, there was definitely a lot of hurt 
um, even before the band broke up. And I think that there was def- there was definitely you know people who hoped that the band would continue and wanted it to continue, and then there were other people who were really struggling, and so that made it that made it tricky. Uh, and it did take quite a long time for us to be able to, uh, start talking more frankly with one another about these things. Um, I would say at this point, while I don't necessarily talk to everybody in the band on a regular basis, we could all get together and have a perfectly good time being in a room together or being together one-on-one. Um, and there are a couple of folks in the band I do speak to regularly, and I'm, I'm glad that in most ways our friendships seem to have remained um, intact, despite the fact that the band we all started together and, and that brought us together no longer exists. How was it after the breakup for you? I mean, you've been doing this band a long time. It's taken you to great heights. It's you know a big part of your life for a long time. Were you depressed after it was done? Did you want to be done with music for a while? What did you do? Uh, man, you know, (laughs) part of the problem with our breakup was just that everybody did have different perspectives. So I just want to make it clear that what I say here only applies to my perspective. Um, for me, I felt like what I wanted to be doing creatively was, um, kind of at odds with what I was able to do within ISIS. So for me, at least creatively speaking, it was kind of a relief to be released from that and to feel like, you know, so much of my time wasn't being dominated by ISIS because, you know, we were a really active band when we weren't touring, we were working on writing or we were recording and that took up a lot of time and energy. So, um, to be able to begin to explore other things again with different people and also to just, you know, not be a part of that constant cycle of writing, recording, recording, touring was liberating for me. Um, and then there was another part of it that was pretty difficult for me, um, not just because of ISIS, but because it was also around that time that I, uh, I left Los Angeles. My partnership um, with Mark, with whom I was running Hydrahead, was breaking down. A long-term relationship I had been in throughout much of the time I was in ISIS also came to an end. Uh, it was like a bunch of things for me really radically shifted. And I had a period of time where I was both relieved and excited about the future and also completely unmoored in a way because I didn't have all these things around me that had sort of kept my life on this very specific trajectory. Um, And in retrospect, that's exactly what I needed. I needed a time to kind of reassess and rebuild and shift my, and, and have the time and space to shift my perspective about what I wanted to be doing and what I needed to be doing. Yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of people hit a point where Everything that was working just isn't working anymore, and choices have to be made. Yeah, and again, you know, I wish (laughs) in some ways I had handled it differently and been a better communicator and been a better friend. Um, And also, this was just part of what needed to happen, uh, I think. And uh, that's, um, that's the pain of making change in your life. So with Sumac, your current most active band... No, I've read that there will be a lot of 
improvisation with the songwriting and you want to think less about what it is specifically you're creating and just be more in the moment. And that makes sense because for a long time, you're tied to ISIS, you're working with the people in that band, you're on a label, you're on the album cycle, we've got to record the record, we've got to tour on the record. And then on the other side of it, you have Hydrahead Records going on. So you're tied to releasing the records and approving things and working with your partner. So it would make sense that you want to take a different approach with Sumac. Is that accurate? It is. Um, and I think another big part of that um, was just wanting to make sure that whoever else was involved was not only creatively fit for the job, but also was someone that you know I felt like I could work with differently than how I had operated within ISIS. People that I could communicate with easily, who are easily get along with for me. Um, and so I spent some time thinking about all that, who I wanted to play with, what I wanted the sound to be, and how that was all going to work out. Um, and again, that was a very different way of thinking about starting a band. Whereas with ISIS, it was really just like, okay, here's the sound I want to have. I want to play. I want to tour. Let's do it. And with Sumac, it was more like, okay, I need to be able to integrate this band into the kind of life I already have and want to continue having. And so there needs to be um, a more, I guess, holistic, life-oriented approach to doing a band rather than just starting a band and making that the focal point of my whole life. How does it work with songwriting? I've read that you'll work on some stuff by yourself and bring it to the other people in the band but also that there will be some improvisation. And, you know, some of the songs can reach 20, 25, close to 30 minutes. So how does that work with improvisation? Do you go by feeling like, okay, I'm going to repeat this riff 20 times. Nope, that doesn't feel like enough. Let me do it 30 times. Like, how, how do you know when it's enough? How do you, how, how does it come together? There's not always a clear sense of what is or isn't enough. Um, I think part of the the point is to be able to exist within the mystery of creation as it's unfolding. Sometimes it's not always clear whether something is good or bad and being able to remove that piece of judgment from the process is pretty crucial. I think it's, it just allows for a different kind of experience between the, the, the players and the music itself. Um, that's not to say that we don't have an interest in making something that ultimately we can perceive as being worthwhile. But what it does mean is embracing the willingness to not always know exactly what you're doing. And within that, being willing to sometimes take things in a direction that might not always be where you intended to go and embracing success or failure along that line of trajectory. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to do things. It's got to be scary but very fulfilling, right? Like, like with these conversations, I have the best time when, to a degree, I throw away any kind of blueprint that I want to follow, and I'm just in the moment, and I move from you know one thing we're talking about to the next, and I don't think about where I'm going to go. I'm just in the moment. I mean, do you, it sounds like you kind of take the same approach with the music and Sumac. 
I think so. And I think what you mentioned just a moment ago about things being scary is important too. That's not to say that I want to be in a constant state of fear or stress when I'm creating. However, I do think that the willingness to embrace uncertainty and to live within that uncertainty is very crucial to me as a creator. Uh, being always always knowing what's going to come next and being able to you know have a, a very um, static way of operating is for me creatively nullifying. And so setting up some parameters that allow for that kind of exploration and allow for the unexpected to have its own space within what you're creating is fundamental to being continually engaged with what's happening. Um, and again, for me, just talking about kind of the ideology behind Sumac and, and going back to what I said a moment ago, having a band that operates in a way that to me is more reflective of life itself is, is part of what makes it so fulfilling for me life itself is unexpected and there's a lot of ways in which you know we have to remain adaptable and we have to be flexible with the people we're around and having a creative practice that mirrors that is for me really um really fulfilling and hopefully meaningful to other people that are are willing to dig into it i like that i read a quote in uh, regards to sumac where you said you follow the intuitive path of emotional communication, right? You let your emotions guide you to decide what's going to work or what's not or where you should go. I do the same thing. I, I, need, I need to be struck with inspiration to write something a lot of times or I need to be guided. And you can feel it. You can feel it when it hits you or when you're, when you're in a room playing with people, you can feel when something is really working. Do you find that as well? I do. And I think that's what's always been exciting to me in writing music is when there's that sense almost kind of an ecstatic state where you know you're on to something um and it is not always the case that that is the place where the best music is made but it's often a pretty good indicator um and coupled with that is also this idea that that moment when something is forming is far more interesting than all the successive moments where you're merely recreating the idea that you've that you've previously discovered. And that's why I think improvisation is a big facet of what we're doing with Sumac. We can have these things that are are tightly structured and fun to play because we know them and we we know how to really emphasize certain aspects of those parts and then we can also have these moments where we let that all fall away and have this whole other side of what we do to explore and use as a counterpoint to those more tightly structured moments. Right. Right. I like that about the music. It's a journey. The, the, there will be a riff and it sounds like a pretty typical heavy song structure, but then it takes a left turn into something else and then a, another turn into something else. It, I like what's going on. Yeah, I do too. And I'm, I'm feeling exceptionally grateful to being able to continue exploring it. How does it work live? Will, will there be improvisation live? Are you replicating exactly what was put down on the record? How does it work? Uh, there would be no way for us to uh, exactly recreate what we've done on the records, especially with 
you know, the, the last two or three, because there's a lot within those recordings that was made up uh, on the spot. I mean, sometimes within a set of guidelines, you know, where there's one foundational element that remains unchanged, or there's a certain point of departure within the song that never changes um, in terms of like the sequence of events. But as far as the actual uh, passages that were initially improvised, there's just no way for us to to recreate that. And that's that's part of what makes these compositions have a continued life is that they grow and change and evolve from the time we write them to the time we record them to all the su- successive times that we play them live. Um, so, you know, we write a set list, we know what songs are going to be on it. And then within those songs, we don't always know what's going to happen or how long the duration of a specific part might be, um, or, you know, uh, the intensity or dynamic of what's going to happen for us individually or collectively. And again, we just try to really inhabit those moments and honor them, uh, by, by being there instead of having to think about what comes next or, um, whether the part itself is being played well or poorly because it didn't exist before that. So there's no way to really (laughs) qualify those sorts of judgments internally. That's really interesting. You're like on another plane of live performance now. Uh, I mean, that's the goal. I'm not sure we always get there, but again, some of this goes back to some of my earlier foundations as far as what inspired me. I remember um, listening to a lot of Hendrix recordings when I was young and hearing the studio version and then being really shocked to hear live versions that were 10 minutes longer than the studio versions were and, you know, abandoned song form altogether in some cases. And uh, though I didn't much appreciate it in my younger years, I was exposed to a lot of jazz um, through my dad's listening that took a similar path where there were themes that were introduced and then, uh, you know, long, long passages of improvisation where people took those points of departure and followed them into completely different territories. Yeah. I had this conversation with someone I can't remember recently where they said they were young and saw Smashing Pumpkins, but the songs were different from exactly what was on the record and they, they weren't happy about it. But now that they're older, they can appreciate that more. And I, I'm the same way. If I was younger, I would have been like, oh no, it's different. It's not good. But as an older person, I can appreciate it because, you know, like in the case of Sumac, what you're going to get is a unique experience to you and that show. I hope so. And and that's for me as a, as a listener and as a showgoer has always been compelling too. When you see a band live and it's a very different experience from the recorded uh, incarnation. I mean, of course, there's instances where that's not great. Uh, I mean, I can certainly think of bands that were very heavy and powerful sounding on record, and then I saw them live, and there was not a lot of energy, and in some cases, a complete lack of volume, which made it antithetical to what I thought the band should be. Um, But in most cases, if a band was willing to embrace a different kind of energy live, as long as it seemed like they were fully invested in what they were doing, that was always uh, compelling to me and remains so. Uh, tragically, Caleb Schofield passed in 2018, and that was a huge blow, obviously, to his family, to his friends, to the scene, and you know, even to people like me, who uh, I didn't know him personally, 
but I really felt that because Caven is one of the bands who got me into this music in the first place. So when did you hear about his passing and how soon do you start talking to everyone about the benefit show? Uh, I don't remember the conversation about the show specifically, but I knew within, I think within 24 hours of, of him passing that it had happened. And the conversations from that point with uh, the members of Old Man Gloom and, and Caven was uh, daily. How was it talking to your bandmates in ISIS again and, uh, you know, talking about getting back together for that show? I mean, obviously, it's difficult because everyone just lost their friend, but I, I imagine there was... Uh, it was strange, too, because you hadn't played together in a little while. I think in, in most ways, it was really a no-brainer. I mean, beyond Caleb being a person that we had toured with, uh, he was a good friend, a co-worker, um, a roommate for many of us. And so our lives were completely interwoven. And we knew his family. We knew Jen and his kids. And being able to do something for them felt like a good way not only to help them and to honor Caleb, but also as a way to process our own grief over his passing. Um, there's a certain powerlessness over death that, that you know, has to be acknowledged. And then there are also the ways in which we do have a choice as far as how we choose to process that. And by coming together as a band and also coming together with so many other people who were close with Caleb, that felt like this really important thing to be able to do while we were all in the midst of this, uh, you know, the, the, the trauma and sadness of his death. Did you ever talk with uh, Isis or Old Man Gloom about doing anything more after that show? Um, I, with Isis, I, you know, there were, because we had kind of opened that can of worms, there was a little bit of discussion, but I think it was, we made it collectively clear going in that this was just a one-off. As far as Old Man Gloom goes, we've never really shut the door on our activity together. It just remains open. We do it when we feel like it. And we all have other things that take up a lot of our time. So, you know, we really just view Old Man Gloom as an opportunity to to hang out with each other and have fun when and where we can. Right, because Old Man Gloom has never been broken up, but there has been long periods of time where everyone was busy with other things. Caven busy with that, you busy with ISIS, but uh, you've certainly come back together over the years to play when you can. It's the longest running band I've ever been a part of. I would think this... Uh, this marks uh, 25 or 26 years of, of intermittently writing and recording records and playing shows. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what we've got coming up. Now, Sumac has some live gigs coming up in February, correct? We've got some in Boston and some at St. Vitus in Brooklyn. Yep, that's right. Uh, just one in Boston and then two in New York. And uh, Sumac just put out a record... Last year, that was a collaboration with KG Hino. Yep, correct. So we want people to check that out, right? Yeah, and we've got uh, we've got another one, a full length of our own that we finished this fall, and I actually just finished and turned in the artwork this morning. Um, so that'll be coming out in June, um, and 
this year marks 10 years as a band for us. And we're not really looking at these shows as anniversary shows necessarily, but we did realize after we had booked them that this is kind of like the first set of shows we've done after being around for about 10 years. And, and we had played some shows uh, in 2023 around here where we were kind of going back to some of the earlier material, some of the earliest material we'd written um, and had enjoyed playing those and had been fun to, to play those for people that maybe had never had the chance to hear them before. And so we're kind of doing a little of that with these shows coming up, but also playing some new stuff too. So it feels like this nice way to look at how we started and where we are now and also kind of open up the door to this new record we've done um, that, we'll be, uh, that we'll be sharing with, with folks in a few months' time. Excellent. Looking forward to that. You know, one more thing I wanted to ask you. What happened with Hydrahead Records? You mentioned earlier, uh, your business partner, his name is Mark. That's right. Yep. You mentioned earlier there was some difficulties with the label and perhaps Mark. What, what happened with the label? Um, it just got to a point where debt had accrued. Uh, a lot of business mistakes had been made. The relationship between Mark and I had crumbled, and my ability to run a full-time label that served a lot of the bands that we were working with on a really functional level had kind of ground to a halt. And so I decided after a lot of internal dilemma that I really just needed to put it to bed and give these records back to the artists and and move on with my life and allow them to move on with theirs. Um, so it's definitely, definitely bittersweet. And, uh, there's ways in which I wish it could have gone differently. Um, but again, it's, it's shaped my life in so many important ways. And I feel so grateful for all of the good stuff that came out of it, uh, that I'm just happy that it existed as it did. And that it allowed me to, um, make so many important connections and that it also meant a lot to a lot of other people. I think that's, um, that's more than is to be expected out of most endeavors in life, creative or otherwise. Certainly. I mean, I think Hydrahead is one of the most important labels in our scene and just so many records. I mean, if you're ever having a bad day, you can just go back and look through the discography and say, hey, look at all this. Look what I did. <laughs> well, I certainly <laughs> wouldn't uh, say, look what I did. It would be more, look what we did. <laughs> but yes, I, I, do, I, do feel, I do feel exceptionally grateful for it. And it did honestly entirely shape my adult life in so many ways, um, from the friends I have to the person I married to the having a, a reason to have a practice as a visual artist. Um, there's so many things that I would not have been able to do if it weren't for that. How's your relationship with Mark? Do you still talk to him at all? I don't. We haven't spoken in probably about 10 years now. Would you want to, or are you just leaving it how it is for now? I don't know, man. I mean, he and I were really good friends and then there was a lot of hurt there and I don't know what good that would do. I, I really tried to reach a point in my life where, um, you know, I honestly wish everyone well and, and wish for people to have peace and life in their own lives. And 
that does not always mean that I want to have contact with those people. <laughs> so, um, you know, I do wish him well, and I hope I hope that he has love and peace within his life. And who knows, maybe someday we'll be able to to connect again. But for the time being, you know, we're we're on our own separate trajectories, and that may just continue to be the case. Right. We just have to stay on the path we're on for the time being. Yeah. Well, Aaron, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. You know, I've been listening to you since I got into this music. You've just done so much great stuff over the years. I really appreciate you. So thank you. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this and being a supporter of so many of the things I've been involved with. I appreciate it. And there you have it. Aaron Turner. Wow. Excellent, excellent, excellent conversation. You know, this is one of those conversations I've wanted to have since the beginning of the show. I may have even reached out the first year we were doing the show, as I did to many people, uh, but we weren't there yet. And I'm so happy that we had the opportunity to get Aaron on the show. Easily one of the most prolific people from our scene. I'm a huge ISIS fan. Uh, I have been since Mosquito Control when I first discovered them. And then I fell off for a bit because, I don't know, I was listening to other stuff. And I heard Panopticon and fell in love with them all over again. I was there for their last tour with the Melvins. I think that was back in 2010. But, I mean, just look at everything Aaron has done. Hydrahead Records, the number of great releases on Hydrahead Records. Go ahead go ahead online and scroll through everything they've, they've released. It's crazy. I was indoctrinated with Hydrahead Records right when I got into this music. Cave-In, one of the first bands to get me into this music. Drowning Man, Jezu. I mean, you name it. Everybody's been on Hydrahead. Botch? I mean, come on. And it was just really fascinating to talk to Aaron about everything and to get to dig in deep on Hydrahead and Isis and learn more about that band. And Sumac, I'm a newer fan to Sumac. What a fascinating process, their creative processes. I mean, to just throw away typical song structures and be in the moment and improvise. And if anyone can do it, they can. Look at who, look at who's in the band. Aaron Turner. We've got Brian Cook from Botch and other bands and Nick on drums. If anyone can get the job done, they can. And Aaron is just so well thought out, intelligent. Having the conversation, my mind was blown because I'm like, wow, we actually got Aaron Turner on the show. And then going back and listening to it again when I was editing the whole thing, I was like, he's just so well thought out. And this is one of those episodes where I pretty much just went through and edited it, edited the whole thing in one shot because it was so good. I mean, there's not enough great things I can say about Aaron. And again, just really thrilled that he came on the show. And I did buy a ticket for that uh, upcoming Sumac gig at St. Vitus. I don't know if any of these shows are sold out yet. Sumac will be performing February 16th at Arts at the Armory in Boston, February 17th at St. Vitus in New York, 
That one might be sold out because when I went to get tickets online, I didn't see that listed. February 18th, St. Vitus, New York City. That's the one I'm going to. Can't wait to see them. Imagine doing improvisation live. I'd be too afraid to do that. I can barely play my own songs live. Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for that show. And I'm really excited to see more from Aaron and Sumac. So thank you so much, Aaron, for coming on the show. Great, great conversation. So let's check in, huh? How are we doing? Now, after being sick for almost the entire month of January, I am back. I am not sick anymore. And I am back to the grind. I was in the studio last weekend, uh, finishing up recording another song for my new band. So we've got about two songs done with three more to record. And then I'm going to shop it around to some smaller labels to see if there's any interest. And then we'll get a release, we'll get a release date set and we'll launch the band. I think as soon as we have the set ready to go and mostly recorded, I'll try to book some shows and maybe just get the Instagram going, you know? I want to get this thing going. I'm excited for you all to hear what we've been working on. So that's coming. The show is really busy. We just had our biggest month ever, and I hope that continues to grow. There's a lot of great conversations coming up that I'm excited for all of you to hear. Some unexpected ones too. So uh, it's going to be good. And uh, I built in a week off from the podcast to just relax, and I had all these great thoughts in my mind of stuff I was going to do. And I pretty much just did nothing except lay around all week. But I guess I needed to do that. You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to play all these games and watch all this stuff and it's going to be crazy. But I didn't do any of that. I just sat around and worked on the podcast. But it was nice to have some time off from not being in a panic about researching guests and listening to whole discographies and all the work that goes into each of the conversations I have on the show. But I'm setting it up so that I have a day off this weekend, and I plan to do nothing but play video games all day. We haven't talked about gaming in a while, so here's what I'm playing. I've been playing some Warzone 3. Now, I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I've been playing Resurgence solos. They'll drop you on a little piece of the new map, Urzikstan, and it's, you know, you know, it's, it's Resurgence solos. And I won three games last weekend. A couple games I had like six kills and didn't get killed once. I felt like a pro. I was so happy. You know, Warzone wins do not come often to me, especially because I don't play nearly as much as I used to. So when I actually win, it's the biggest rush. Still, I've been working on the Dead Space remake. I have played part two, but I never played part one. And I love it. It looks great. It's fun. It's scary. Uh, I'm having a great time with that. I started A Link to the Past on Super Nintendo. I've never played that in my life, uh, but I kind of fell off with that. Elden Ring I was playing a lot and I kind of fell off with that because Elden Ring is a big investment of time. You can't just like jump in for five minutes and play and jump out, which is mostly what I do these days. The Elden Ring, the map is immeasurably big and there's just endless stuff to do. So I don't know. I haven't played in a month or two. I need to get back into it at some point. We'll see. We'll see. I'd like to finish that game at some point, but it's going to take me a long time. I've also got a bunch of retro stuff 
that I haven't jumped back into. I picked up my old Sega Genesis from my parents' house. I have Sonic 1 and 2. I picked up my old PlayStation from my parents' house. I've got the original Final Fantasy 7. Uh, there's the Quake. There's Quake stuff I haven't finished playing. There's Sigil 2, which is a new chapter for the original Doom that John Romero created uh, as part of the Doom 30th anniversary. I have to play that. But listen, all of that is getting put aside when Final Fantasy VII Rebirth comes out at the end of February. And I'm really excited for that. Can't wait to play that. So, you know, as much as I like gaming and as much and as much time as I spend on Twitch all day watching other people game, I, I really don't play that many games anymore. There's just not time. I don't have time like I used to. I'm going to a lot more shows. I'm out more than I used to be. And, you know, by the time I finish my day job and then finish the podcast and it's like 10 o'clock at night, I'm not typically gearing up to play games. But when I can play, I do really enjoy them. It's the one thing I have left that's just mine that I can just sit there and enjoy and tune out. So I still do it when I can. There's a lot of shows I'm going to coming up too. Check this out. Let me read to you from my spreadsheet here. All right, we've got Code 7, Jerome's Dream, Author and Punisher with Glassing at St. Vitus. Can't wait for that one. Zulu at the Meadows in Brooklyn. I'm really, really, really excited for that. I just, you know, a new, again, a new tomorrow is a perfect record. There are not many perfect records out there, but a new tomorrow by Zulu is a perfect record and I can't wait to see them. I'm going to that. I'm the Koyo One Step Closer and Anxious Tour. I'm going to that. That's going to be insane. And I think I think uh, Knocked Loose. Knocked Loose is playing Terminal 5 here in New York City. I'm going to go to that too. I've sort of saw Knocked Loose at Furnace Fest, but the stage was so crowded. There was just people everywhere. You couldn't even get close to see them. So I need to see them for real. I really enjoy them. So I'm going to go to that too. All right. So let's check in with the New Scene Community Hour. First, I'm going to read the new Apple Podcast reviews that we've gotten. And listen, if you have not submitted an Apple Podcast review, please do so. We are very close to 200. We are on the push to 200. We only need like 16 more. So let's do this. Let's get it done. We'll give it a rest for a little bit, and then we'll be on the push to 300. So here's some new reviews. All right, we've got a new review from Action Freak. Five stars. They say, Keith, I've been waiting for the day you talked to someone from Thrice, and I'm so stoked that you got to talk to Riley, one of my favorite drummers ever. So happy you got to talk to him and very excited to hear that they're still working on the new album. Hope you get to talk to the rest of the guys from the band as well. Teak. That's from Teak. Thank you so much, Teak, for that review. Yeah, a lot of good feedback on the Thrice interview. And I loved it too. Great band. Thank you, Teak, for that review. Next one is from Clay W. Five stars. Do yourself a favor and listen. I don't listen to every episode, but the ones that I do listen to are great. Excellent interviews. This is high on my rotation list. Thank you, Clay. All right, we have another new review from Hot Rod Chris P. Chris says, great show. Listened because of the episode with Riley from Thrice. Now another great podcast 
to add to my roster. Welcome to the party, Chris. Thank you for listening. All right, and we have another new review from Horace Horace. Five stars, nostalgic and inspiring. Very excited to stumble upon this show. While I am not familiar with many newer bands on here, I enjoy all episodes, but especially the hardcore bands from Y2K era that I grew up on, many of which I had not thought of in many years. These episodes leave me surprised that the artists are still around, thankful for the time I spent participating in in the DC hardcore scene as a performer and fan, and inspired to write new music or at least noodle around on my bass. Love this. Thank you for the stories. Thank you, Horace. Thank you. That's all of our new reviews. And again, we're close to 200. Write a review, hit the five-star button. It's an easy way to support the show and not spend any money or take up too much of your time. I got a couple of nice Instagram messages too. Todd Breeden on Instagram said, The Riley episode introduced me to your podcast. Just finished the one with George Clark earlier. Really enjoyed them both, and I'm looking forward to going back through the older ones. Todd, welcome to the new scene. Thank you for that. Oh yeah, a couple people messaged me about the Thrice interview and mentioned here that he had another band called Less Art. And look, I'm going to be honest, I didn't know about the band why before I spoke to Riley. From all of your messages, I got turned on to Less Art, who put out an excellent record called Strangled Light in 2017. I've since gone back and listened to that. Less Art has Riley from Thrice and members of Curl Up and Die and Kowloon Walled City, and it's really good. Check it out. Sean McDonough wrote me and said, hey, We are big fans of the podcast, and we're trying to figure out the intro song. Any help? Yes, Sean, happy to help out with that one. The intro song is my short-lived 2018 band. It's called The Basement Year, and the track is called Uncomplicated. You can find the EP on YouTube or Spotify or your streaming service of choice. It's a five-song EP. And Sad Dad's Club on Instagram sent me a message that made my day last week. They said, hats off to you, eloquent conversationalist on a truly sterling podcast. You are so knowledgeable, kind, sincere, and engaging with your guests. I can say without a shred of hesitation that you, Keith, host the best music podcast that I've ever heard. Thank you for all of your hard work and sharing this with the world. It is appreciated. Thank you, Sad Dad's Club, for that message. I read that on the way to the studio last week when I was going in to finish up a song, and that really put a smile on my face. So thank you. Really, really nice message. We got a ton of good feedback on last week's episode with Meha Shami from No Man as well. You know, just people saying how inspiring it was and what a great conversation it was and how important it was. And look, I'm very happy to give Meha a platform to tell her story, to speak with her about it, to get myself up to date on everything that's going on and uh, support her and the Palestinian people in the small way that I can. So again, Meha, thank you for coming on the show and thank you everybody for the kind words about that episode. 
And we have a new feature on the show, which you've probably seen by now, which is the Artist Spotlight Interview. And those interviews will continue on the last episode of the month each month. Sometimes there might not be one, but when there is one, it'll be in the last episode of the month. And that's an opportunity to have uh, some up-and-coming bands and lesser-known bands on the show to give them some exposure and support them. Because, you know, when Tommy and I started this show, we felt like the underdogs. Tommy hadn't been in a band in a long time since he was an audience of one. I hadn't been in a band for a couple years at that point. And this was our thing. This thing of ours, as Tommy used to call the show. The show was a way for us to be connected to music, to talk to the artists we love, and to connect with each other as well. And, you know, throughout the early days of the show, we always made it a point to have newer bands on that we discovered and loved. And we always made it a point to have friends of ours on the show as well, who were in bands that we grew up with, or were in bands that were not necessarily huge, or, you know, or they were in bands that broke up a while ago, whatever the case is. And after Tommy left the show, I was doing guest co-hosts for a while, and that was a way for me to get comfortable doing the show myself and just to have guests come back on the show so I could catch up with them. But again, also to have friends on and have people in lesser known bands or more upcoming bands on the show to give them some exposure. But sometime around September of last year, I just lost the desire to do the guest co-host thing anymore. It's hard. You have to basically record two shows and, you know, for a first time guest coming on the show, it would be confusing if I said, hey, do you want to guest co-host the show with me? They don't know what that means. And I think sometimes it would make the show too long too. Sometimes some of those episodes could reach close to two and a half hours. If someone's coming on the show for the first time, I don't want to put the pressure on them to host an entire podcast with me. You know, if I'm going to have somebody on, I would rather just have them on for the interview. So we will continue to support new and upcoming artists in the artist spotlight segment of the show. And that's it. That's all I've got for this week, but we're back next week with another big episode with a person from a band I've been listening to since I got into this music, a band many of you are familiar with, uh, an excellent band, and I can't wait to be back with you next week to present that episode. So this week we are going to end the show with my favorite Isis the Band song. It's called Backlit. And it's from their 2004 album, Panopticon. I think Panopticon is my overall favorite Isis the Band release. And remember, you can always find all the music associated with the show on the New Scene Spotify playlist. Our 2024 Spotify playlist is live now. Search it out, like it, follow it. I put all of our guests there. I put all of my personal recommendations there. And there's a playlist for every year that the show has been active. So you can go through and hear all of the historical playlists as well. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening. And until next time.